Hey, thank you all for joining us. This is Trevor, one half of TBT, Hosea 4-6, Truth Be Told, Hosea 4-6 podcast, a.k.a. Trevi Trev. Listen, we just first and foremost want to say thank you all for being a part of this podcast. Uh, to all of our partners, our friends, those who've donated to us to help us stay on the podcast airway, so to speak. Uh, we just want to say thank you, and, and we very much so appreciate everything you've done for us. I've got a very special episode on today, very special guest. Um, I often say it's two, two people that pushed me into apologetics, although we, we've never met face-to-face. One would be the late Ravi Zacharias, and then my passion with, with biblical studies, with apologetics, the resurrection would be our guest today, the one, the only, the legendary Dr. Gary Habermas. Welcome, sir. Thank you, Trevor. Glad to be here. Good topic, too. Yes, sir. I'm I'm so excited. I mean, you know, I was I even just sending an email. I told my co-host, I said, man, I'm so nervous even to ask Dr. Hatmas. I know he's so busy, um, you know, with his schedule and all that he has going on there and how on demand he is. I, you know, you can look on social media and it's always, you know, something. We got a live with Dr. Habermas or, you know, looking on YouTube and it's a new video that just released with Dr. Habermas. So, um, you know, it's it's just uh, such a blessing and an honor to, to have this brilliant mind here. Um, I say that in my opinion, I think he is probably <laughs> – the world's leading expert in the topic that we're going to talk about today. And uh, I'm so elated just to have him. Uh, Dr. Habermas, for those that don't know you, um, give us a little bit of background, uh, whatever you want the audience to know about yourself. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll relate my background to the topic, our, sure. our first topic on the resurrection. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. I was, uh, we went to a German Baptist uh, church and and uh, I fell into some, uh, fell, fell is a funny word, but I, I began doubting pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, it got worse and it got more detailed and I got deeper and more books. My collection looked like behind you there, nice library. <laughs> and, um, and I read like crazy and I played a lot of sports, uh, mostly football and um, ice hockey. And or I should just say hockey. A lot of what I played was uh, street hockey. But but um, I would come in at night and my question, you know, when everybody was in and it was you know getting dark, my first question when I settled down on my desk was, where did I leave off on my doubts the night before? Mm-hmm. And um my friends would say, well, look, if you want to know if Christianity is true, study this or study that or study this. And we've all heard the topics. Sometimes they said, take a look at evidence for creation or look at intelligent design or look at archaeology or look at the evidence for the textual, the textual evidence for the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Or, and I would start going through these things and I would say, yeah it's not bad. It's pretty good, but it's not really answering my, my deepest questions. Mm -hmm. And I kept pushing. Well, that went on for about 10 years. And then actually it went on for about 10 more years intermittently after that. So I, I had my, my rounds with doubt for, you know, 20 years on and off 20, 10 of them straight. Uh, But during that time, 
I came across a reference in a book, and the, and the fellow said, if Jesus was raised from the dead, he must be who he said he was, because only God can raise the dead. So if it truly mm -hmm. happened, God would have to have done it, and it can't be because Jesus is a false prophet. He's the only founder of a major world religion who was raised from the dead, and none of the other theories make sense, so Christianity would be true. Mm -hmm. Well, what I thought to myself was, that's a really good argument if the argument is true, but I had no idea if the argument was true. Mm -hmm. So I dug into it and started reading like crazy. Now, in those days, I know this is uh, old stuff for people on computers, but we used three by five cards, little index cards. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with something like 1,500 index cards on the resurrection. And I had enough data that when I later did my dissertation at a secular university on the resurrection, my, my index cards helped me tremendously, already having done a lot of the research. So, mm -hmm. But at the time, I didn't know if it was good or not. So um, I kept studying the resurrection, and I guess you'd say the rest is history. Um, that the resurrection convinced me that it was true, and I, I've never given it up. I mean, I do other topics, but I've never moved away totally from the resurrection because there's too many challenges. Christians know that if it's true, Christianity is true. Non-Christians know that if it's false, Christianity is false. So they constantly go after it. So doubts got me into it. And by God's grace, I haven't had doubts for many, many years. But, but um, you know, for all intent and purposes, the evidence has, has stood true. And there's plenty of time for commitment, too. I mean, some people say, well, what? If, if you studied it, um, then that's not faith. That's evidence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say, well, let's just use an analogy. If you're dating a man or a woman, and you're going to do research, right? You're going to find out about that person. You're going to spend time with them. You're going to see how they are in this situation, how they are in that situation. And many people, many people make fast decisions, but many people get a lot of information before they make a decision. Right. And, and so what do we say? That's not faith? Right. You go, well, no, it's facts. You go, really? Well, there's these two magic words, I do. Mm -hmm. And I do commit you to a life of commitment. But you mm -hmm. make commitment on the basis of data, not against data. And anybody who's wise gets the, gets the evidence, quote unquote, before they say, I do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same way when you say, I do to Jesus. So right. that, that critique never bothered me. I was off and running, studying the resurrection, and that was it. But I've stayed there because, just because of all the attacks. Right. And that's, that's, um, you know, that's, that's something good. That's something I struggled with, um, you know, just moving from, you know, let's just believe by faith. Right. And then you have some questions that arise. And so um, that's, that's what kind of drove me to the resurrection and having such a passion of unpacking that truth. Um, perhaps you can, you can tell us about where scholars stood at one point, um, like the Rudolf Boltmans and Walter Cunningham's Reginald Fuller's why was it so popular to believe, I guess, during the enlightenment period on, you know, coming up to maybe 1960, 1970 about the, about the resurrection just being maybe a myth or uh, um, just spirit that is, you know, maybe the body was stolen or, you know, his spirit just rose. Yeah. Well, the three guys you mentioned, 
Rudolf Boltmann is the most critical. Mm-hmm. And he even said in a famous 1941 essay, I mean, this is a long time ago, but he got the ball rolling on treating uh, it, the, the move was called demythologization. And what mm-hmm. he asks is, it's not about history because we don't need evidence and supernatural things don't happen for all intent and purposes, but it's all about what does it mean in your ministry today? And he, he was famous for a line, Jesus is risen in the preaching of the church. Mm-hmm. And, well, here's the problem. That was written back in 1941. Boltman died in 76. Mm-hmm. And since that time, his, his thought has gone into a pretty big fall, pretty much a free fall. He was very influential, but he's not now. And one of the main reasons is he didn't think we had to know history, but there are major, major volumes. I've got two of them right here to my right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Wright's Resurrection of the Son of God and Mike Lacona's Resurrection of Jesus. To, to Combined, mm-hmm. they're about 1,500 pages. Very thick. And a new one just came out um, uh, by a scholar named Cook, John Cook, and his is the same length. Mm-hmm. So that's three books over 2,000 pages on the historicity of the resurrection. They're very mm-hmm. sophisticated studies. Yeah. So the tables have turned on Boltman, and, and Boltman didn't so much. Boltman would never pick one of those theories. Mm-hmm. The disciples mm-hmm. the body. He wouldn't waste his time. He wouldn't do those things. Plus, like Bart Ehrman says, the atheist New Testament scholar, you you get yourself in a corner whenever you do that. He, Rudolph uh, and Bart Ehrman was really cool. He said, he said Christians want you to bring up those theories. <laughs> right, he right. Said, when you really know them, uh-huh. when you really know them, you're going to get the guy in the corner. In fact, mm-hmm. I'll tell you a real quick story. One of my very first debates with an atheist, we were dialoguing, and the guy said he, he kind of had a temper, mm-hmm. and the prof- he was a professor, and he said, you know, I'm not enjoying this very much. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, why? And he said, well, you want me to pick a theory, and what's going to happen after I pick it is that you're going to paint me in a corner and I'm not going to be able to get out of it. And I'm not going to be a very happy guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that's your view. You're an atheist. Well, what view would you take? And he actually defended, you know, he, he's out of his field. So I said, it's still the case that nobody really takes this today, but he defended that disciples stole the body, which is the worst of all the theories. Right. And so right away I started giving reasons against it. And he literally said, he said he had a pipe in his mouth and he was holding his pipe. And he said, I, I'm stopping. This is it. No more debate. He said, as far as I'm concerned, this debate is over. And he didn't mm. talk anymore. Wow. Now, that was a long time ago. But, I mean, mm-hmm. that's an idea. And Bart Ehrman said, right in his book, he said, I used to, when I was an evangelical, he said, uh, when people give me theories like that, I would salivate because I knew the reasons were coming next. And I was going to be able to pin that guy in the corner and uh, Bart Ehrman says in his latest book on this that that he's given up taking naturalistic theories. He doesn't take them anymore. Wow, and that's largely what happens. So yeah, yeah, that's um, you know, and especially coming from Bart Ehrman, I mean, you can say he's probably what the the world's leading critic. That's you fair. Know, you know, or maybe in America or in the West, you know, for sure, in, critic. For sure, in North America, maybe maybe <laughs> in the world, but he admits so much. He admits so much data. Mm-hmm. For example, he says the Gospels are not reliable, and yet he gives 15 independent evidences for the crucifixion of Jesus. Four of them are not even in the New Testament, and they're not Christian. 
Wow. So wow. Uh, he's very free. He says the early creeds, which are, I think, the best evidence for the resurrection. Yeah. And Bart, I was just going to say, Bart Ehrman says these creeds, this is Bart Ehrman, the mm -hmm. atheist. He says the creeds date one to two years after the cross. Mm -hmm. I mean, the first book doesn't come out for 20 years, First Thessalonians. Right. But he said the creeds date one to two years after the cross. They come from Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. They could very well have come from the apostles themselves. And Paul could have gotten them from James and Peter when he visited uh, Jerusalem, which we have a date for that, 35 mm -hmm. AD. Mm -hmm. He said he could have gotten them right there. And probably all the creeds were in existence while Paul was still a persecutor. That's a, that's a pretty heavy evidence. Right. It is. I mean, and you know, and, and, and I'm thinking of like Gerd Luderman as well in his book on yeah. resurrection. I mean, yeah. he's dating it pretty early. Uh, he James, does. James, and I'm talking about the creed in, in first Corinthians and we'll touch on that here. I mean, like the late yeah. James DG Dunn, I just heard he passed away. He did. Um, so, so I have his thick book, uh, sitting behind me, but he dates it pretty early. Um, yeah, he he said it might come. He said the creed may be dated the exact same year Jesus was crucified. Wow. And that's early. And then uh, with the late Larry Hurtado, he dates it within weeks or days. Am I, is that? He does. He, he says, yes. He says that, yes, yes. I'll just say yes and not take all your time. <laughs> no, you're good. But you're yeah, good. those are those are good guys. Larry Hurtado's a major scholar. Oh, I was with Richard Bauckham one time, so he's the – He's the third guy in that group, mm -hmm. Hurtado, Bauckham, and Dunn, what they call the High Christology Club. That's kind of a cute <laughs> name. But Dunn walked into a lecture that I was giving in Cambridge wow. years ago. And after it was over, I said, what do you think about my timeline? Because I said these things, these things were one to two years later. Mm -hmm. And I cited him. I cited Bauckham. And he said, he, he said I, I totally agree. So that's mm -hmm. the, big, the big three, Hurtado, Dunn. And uh, James, uh, uh, wait a minute, Hurtado, Don Bauckham, there's the third one. And all three agree to that. But Bart Ehrman agrees to it, and he's an atheist. So, yeah, yeah we're on really strong grounds with the resurrection. Oh, yeah. Um, so, and, and that, was, that was my contention. I remember when I was in uh, the MDF apologetic track there at Liberty, and so I emailed Dr. Ronnie Campbell. Shout out to Dr. Ronnie Campbell. I had him quite a few times. Right, he's a good guy. He is very, very gracious, very kind. And I said, yep. I asked somebody in the email, I said, Dr. Campbell, how can scholars date the creed in 1 Corinthians? What, how can they just look at it and say, okay, this occurred within one or two years. This occurred within months or weeks. Uh, Dr. Habermas, for those who's listening, just say, well, you know, this is just written words. How could scholars date with certainty this creed? What, what goes behind dating that creed in 1 Corinthians 15? Right. Let's, let's back it up. I'll give you brief argument. There are okay. 13 books in the New Testament that bear Paul's name. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals would say Paul wrote the 13 books. Critics unanimously will give you seven of them. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, they always give you the same seven. It's not like somebody takes uh, Titus and the other person doesn't take Titus. They all take the same seven. If, and if your listeners are interested, uh, it's Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, First Thessalonians, and Philemon. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, now, whenever I do this, I don't know if the audience is going to say that's a bunch of baloney. There's six books they're not accepting, or do you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, he's going to let me use seven of those books. I can make my case with seven books. Let's mm -hmm. let the other six sit for now. If we can get a resurrection with seven books, let's go for it. And I'm on that side. 
Let's yeah. not, I'm not going to admit seven because that's all I admit. Mm-hmm. I'm going to admit seven so that I can use it as a methodological move. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> okay, so they grant Paul's books. And now, now, next question, what do they do with Paul? Well, they don't think Paul's inspired, but they think he's a great guy. Right. He's, Paul is the critic's darling today, almost unanimously. And here's what they'd say about him. They'd say, hey, come on. The guy's brilliant. He basically had a PhD in Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, smart as a whip. You know what? An atheist friend of mine who became a theist later in his life, he was the best known atheist at the time in the world, Anthony Flew. Mm-hmm. Um, I, he said one time in a lecture, and I was with him, and he said, Paul was a first-class philosopher, and then he called Jesus. He said, Jesus is an ethical philosopher, an ethicist. And I said, and I was curious. So we, we spent a lot of time together. And, and I said, why do you say Paul's a first-class philosopher? And here's his answer. He goes, my golly, have you ever read the book of Romans? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, a few times. He said, <laughs> you can't put an argument like that together and not be real sharp and being able to string the premises together to make a good argument. He said, Romans is, is heady. Okay, mm-hmm. so what you have is seven books by Paul. And they think he's a real scholar, PhD Old Testament, knows, here's, this is huge. This might be the biggest one. He knew the key apostles. He tells us himself in one of those accredited books, Galatians, Mm -hmm. that he went to Jerusalem just five years after the cross. He spent 15 days with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, talking about Mm -hmm. the gospel. 14 years later, there's still no New Testament book. He goes back. And this time John is there. So mm-hmm. the big four are there. You've got uh, the two of the 12, Peter and John, and two who are also called apostles, but not part of the 12, Paul and James, their brother of Jesus. You've mm-hmm. got the big four, easily the most influential Christians who ever lived. They're all there. And the Galatians 2.2, they're having a discussion about the nature of the gospel. And they all agree on it. They all agree. Paul said, they added nothing to me. And they gave Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship. Well, we don't give the right hand of fellowship to heretics. So they sent them out on a missions uh, on their mission with the right hand of fellowship. And then Paul says, first Corinthians 15, 11, uh, we are all preaching the same message. The other apostles and I all preach that we saw the risen Jesus after he was uh, crucified. That's first Corinthians 15, 11. Now you could say, it's about the worst you could do. You could say, Oh, come on. All that is, is oral testimony and that's circumstantial. You're just report, repeating what people say. Wait mm-hmm. a minute. You're not listening. Paul wrote at least seven, go- seven of the books. He's a real scholar. Critics, critics think he might be wrong. He, they'll say he's not inspired, but he's not going to lie to you. He's going to be really honest. We have, we have of those big four. We have martyrdom sources for the three of the four, Paul, James, and Peter, within the first century that they died for what they taught. They, uh, Paul said when he came to Jerusalem and, for, and five years later, he got this material. So it's pre, pre-trip to Jerusalem. If not the creeds themselves, at least the material in the creeds, because they're talking about the gospel and that's there. And for example, Romans 10.9 is one of those creeds. And it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him, that you'll be saved. So mm-hmm. there's the gospel right there. Well, Again, review Bart Ehrman, an atheist New Testament scholar. He says, one to two years after the cross for a number of these, mm-hmm. 
from Jerusalem, maybe from the apostles themselves, and Paul might have gotten all of them uh, in Jerusalem before he started writing his books. They all go to an early date. So they're very early, right time, right place, right people, all authorities, mm -hmm. and three of the four, we have testimony that they died for their for their teaching, specifically on the resurrection. You go, well, how do you know they died for the resurrection? Mm -hmm. well, because it's the center of faith. Without it, there's no faith. With it, there's faith. If you mm -hmm. die for the faith, you die for the gospel. If you die for the gospel, you die for the resurrection. It's a heart. So mm -hmm. you got it all. And like I said, Jimmy Dunn, Hurtado, Balkum, they all put this in the first, uh, say, two years. It's a consensus New Testament position today. Even skeptics. There are a number of Jewish writers who mm -hmm. concede these sources. So it's a mm -hmm. very, very strong argument. People can ignore it, mm -hmm. but that's not the same as disproving it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry mm -hmm. for that long explanation. No, no, you, you're good. That's, we, we, we can we, get back there without... <laughs> and and here's, here's the key, Trevor. We, we don't have to know that the New Testament's inspired. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a pastor or you teach Sunday school, you can believe that. You can teach it's inspired. There's good reasons for it. I'm just saying, if someone says to me, yeah, but there's contradictions in the Gospels, mm -hmm. or what do you do with um, uh, this problem or that problem? I'm going to mm -hmm. go... Time out, time out. Do we have sources for the crucifixion? Yes. Bart mm -hmm. Ehrman gives 15 independent sources. So Jesus was dead. Yes. Good medical evidence for that. I'm doing a major article right now for a medical journal on how we know Jesus was dead and what, what medical doctors are saying. Okay, yes. Uh, did people see him again? Well, they claim they see him again. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do any of the theories make sense? They don't. Mm -hmm. In fact, so much so that Bart Ehrman says, I won't pick a theory anymore. I'm not going to pick mm -hmm. a specific theory. I'm just going to make Christians happy if I do that. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. He doesn't pick one. So you put that all together and someone could say, well, what do you say about this contradiction? Or I think I've heard that's a contradiction. I'll say, can we do one thing at a time? Let's get back to the contradiction next week. But all you need right now is, did Jesus die on the cross? Uh, yeah, pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. Did he, did the disciples have experiences which they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus? Yes. Everybody mm -hmm. admits that. I'm, Bart Ehrman says, I have no problem admitting that because it's proven history. Yeah. So yes. And, and they were sure they saw him proven by the fact that three of the four died and all of them were willing to die for the central message. Yes. Then we have, let, let's put these other claims. Well, I heard that the Bible is whatever you want to say, but if you've got the gospel, and I'll close with this, when you have the gospel, that puts you on the yellow brick road mm -hmm. walking toward the Emerald City. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, that's us. That's Pilgrim's Progress. That's Narnia. That's Middle Earth. Yeah. Put you in another world heading for the Emerald City. And so if all I know is the resurrection is true, if that's all I know, the data are unparalleled, if all I know is that the resurrection is true, we can have eternal life. Mm -hmm. I can have eternity walk, work these things out. And who's waiting for eternity? You and I could sit down and we could do that problem or that one you want to discuss. We'll do it next week. But right now you can get on the path. So are you willing to say, I do it to Jesus? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's, we only have to work on one thing, and that's the gospel, the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. Then we can move out from there. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I did a, um, in a men's group, I did a lecture, um, you know, why do you believe what you believe? And we, we started and worked our way, you know, dealing with just deity, death, and resurrection. Right. 
you know, and, and the importance of that. Um, so you, you, you were hinting on some things that you developed in your um, PhD program while you were at Michigan State University, uh, the minimal facts approach. For those that have not heard of that, can you just you know, briefly detail um, what it is and then, you know, some of the importance that majority of scholars accept? Sure. In fact, Trevor, I, I, interestingly, I just did it, but I didn't tell them I was doing it. Okay, here, here's, the, here's the minimal facts argument. I will use only facts mm -hmm. which critics accept and admit. Mm -hmm. Why do they accept and admit them? The most important point is, see, right away people go, oh, you just, that's appeal to authority. You're just saying you accept it because so many people accept it. Nope. There's a previous step. I say this all the time. Mm -hmm. The reason the scholars accept it is because I won't use a fact unless every fact I use has multiple facts coming at them like this. In fact, mm -hmm. those the, the six that I would use, mm -hmm. the six that I would use, there are over 100 pieces, puzzle pieces of backup information admitting those six. Over wow. 100. Wow. So I will only use data, which A, are confirmed by many other pieces of data. And as a result, skeptical scholars will accept the facts. Atheists, agnostics, Jewish. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not picking on a Jewish. When I say a non-Christian Jew, I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying, if I say Jewish scholars, they're going to say, oh, you mean Jewish scholars who became Christians? No, Jewish mm -hmm. scholars who are not Christians who allow this, right. who allow this data. And so I only use their data. I've done this in dialogues a lot. And here's what they say. The guys in the dialogue will say, yeah, 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 you can have those facts. They're given. They're, mm -hmm. I'll use their data. And that's why I'm saying, well, you don't know about this, or you've got a problem with this verse, or I think that verse in the Old Testament has a problem. They can say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but if we have Jesus who's deity, died on the cross, rose from there, how, well, how do you know he's deity? Even if he claimed it, how do you know it? Well, who's going to raise him from the dead? If he's a mere man, is, is a dead man, is a guy in the casket going to raise himself from the right, dead? Right. So if he's got to be acted on by God, God doesn't raise him because he's a heretic. Mm -hmm. And no other founder of a major world religion is even believed to be raised from the dead. Right. No appearances. Um, a, a famous Jewish rabbi died about uh, 25 years ago now. And He's believed by some of his followers to be the Messiah, and they claim that he was still alive. Nobody's ever seen an appearance, and and what they claim is, well, here he's here in spirit when we pray and stuff. He's mm. here in spirit, mm. so anybody can claim that if they want to. But they don't even think he was raised. They don't think that anybody's ever seen him. So, so mm -hmm. um, the Christian message is a unique message. And why would the Father have done it if the message is not true? Right. It's pretty hard. To, if you're going to grant, if you don't grant the resurrection, you have an issue. But mm -hmm. if you grant the resurrection, you have an issue. Because right. what happens is the yellow brick road and the trip to the Emerald City. Mm -hmm. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? I'm using oh, yeah. the yellow brick road and Emerald City. I'm using <laughs> the, old, the old Wizard of Oz, but I think everybody probably knows the Wizard of Oz story. Yeah, very, very, very popular. Even uh, the old movie, a very popular movie. It is, yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, with, with minimal fact, how important would the women have been? Why, why do the Gospels emphasize the women, you know, being first or the women well, even going to the tomb? Most critics uh, 
believe that that's the strongest evidence for the empty tomb. Now, I think there's two others that are equally mm. strong. But I think the fact that, uh, by the way, I think there's over 20 evidences for the empty tomb. But I'm only talking about the three most important ones. Um, and the women are thought by most to be the strongest. And here's why. The four people writing the Gospels were not mm -hmm. looking over each other's shoulder. They were spread around the Mediterranean world. The, the, the early reports were that Mark wrote from Rome, mm -hmm. John wrote from Ephesus, and so on. And they, I mean, that's a long way between Ephesus right. and the area of Turkey mm -hmm. and Rome. And, and so why, when they're telling the story of the Gospels, why do you say early Sunday morning, variously, by the way, the Gospels say the first day of the week, yeah. Um, but also it's the third day. So the New Testament says both the third day and the first day. We know how they're the same thing. Mm -hmm, third mm -hmm. day is from the crucifixion. First day is when it happened. Um, <clears throat> why do you say women went to the tomb? Mm -hmm. uh, now, let's think about this. Critics don't accept female testimony as a general rule. They accept them on occasion. They could testify in a court of law, but they weren't. It wasn't preferred testimony. Mm -hmm. Why would you say it was a woman? And you go, well, because they really went to the tomb. And that's true. But think about this. Luke and John both tell us that the men went back later to confirm it. Yeah. If I wanted to keep the testimony true mm -hmm. and not be lying, I could say, on the first day of the week, the men went to the tomb and found it open. That's totally true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally true. I could bypass the women just to get my better evidential foot forward. So when you could have gone to the men... Why did you go to the women? Mm -hmm. And the reason is very simple now. All four of them believed the women were the first ones there. And yeah, the men went back, but because the women went first. Mm -hmm. So you start with the women, very easy. They were there. Why would you go with, I, I hate to say, you know, less than super testimony, because that's how the women were treated. Not mm -hmm. just in Jerusalem, by the way, all the way around the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. But but why would you put your weaker foot forward? And why four out of four? Yeah. Because that's what happened. And then we do have the men going back later. So the testimony for the women is taken very, very seriously. Even Jesus Seminar members, real strict critics, they will even say, uh, we think the women saw Jesus. That the appearance mm -hmm. to the women, not just the empty tomb, but mm -hmm. the women saw Jesus. In Matthew, it says they held them by the feet. In John, Mary goes back alone, Mary Magdalene, and she holds him by the feet. Mm -hmm. um, they think the women were part of the witnesses. They're, mm -hmm. And they're critics. Right. Yeah. So. It's, it, you know, and I even think, you know, with them just, you know, preaching, you know, proclaiming a bodily resurrection in Jerusalem, right. you know, and you can just go down I, to... I think that's the second best reason. Yeah. I, I, I say the second one I give. I think it's as good as the women. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. As good as the women. Because... If you're going to preach the empty tomb in Rome, mm -hmm. let's be serious. No one's going to get on a ship and take months and all that expense and go to Israel and back just to go, man, that tomb was empty. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. They're not going to do it. But you don't preach an empty tomb in Jerusalem if a one-hour walk could take you to the place and you find it open. Yeah. So you, you can't claim that where somebody can disprove it very quickly. Yeah. And the, thir the third reason I think is we have multiple sources for the empty tomb. Yeah. I could spell these out, but we have several different sources, independent sources. Mm -hmm. 
for the tomb being empty. I think those three combined are really strong evidences. Excuse me. Yeah. And, and even the, the fact that you get literature a little bit later, they don't say that his body was there and they could have done so. That's right. You know, it wasn't disproven. Yeah. It was just saying, oh, they stole the body. You know, in Acts 6, Trevor, there's a really interesting verse. At, at Acts 6, the church is still young. Mm-hmm. And just before Stephen's killed, and it says, many priests became obedient to the faith. Mm-hmm. And, and here's, here's what kills me. There's no explanation. And I'm thinking, Luke, please tell me. Come on. <laughs> now, according to Matthew, and a lot of critics don't like this verse, but according to uh, Matthew, there were guards at the tomb, and the Jewish priests paid the guards off to say the disciples stole the body, but that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you go, well, that's just not that's not a only Matthew reports it. Why don't we have better evidence? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to know why the bunch of priests came to the faith. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, it doesn't prove anything, but it is another little catch point here that says that's some, you know, possible data. Mm-hmm. You know, even with Paul's testimony, you know, oh, it, Paul, <laughs> they were like, wait a minute. You say Paul joined the church. What in the world? You know? Yeah. And that's what the New Testament did. They were afraid to talk to him. Remember? Exactly. You know, he had their reputation of chopping heads off. I'm, you know, you by the be- way, uh, the latest book, I, I mentioned three big ones mm-hmm. that did all come out since 03. John Cooks came out in 018 and his theme, it's, it's 750 pages long, if I remember correctly. And he starts out at the very beginning. It's like the preface, mm-hmm. page one. And he says, here's my first theme for this whole book. Mm-hmm. Paul taught resurrection of the body and he had the same view of the resurrection appearances and body of Jesus that the Gospels taught. That's, mm. that's an incredibly hard comment to make with the critics. Well, the book was published. It's got, it's got multiple languages in it. This doesn't make it true, but it does make it heady. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. published by a German publisher, and it's 750 pages long. You had to satisfy this critical. This is a critical German publisher. Mm-hmm. You had mm-hmm. to satisfy them. By the way, he had, a, he had a previous book, 550 pages, on the evidence for the crucifixion alone, and then 750 on the resurrection. Yeah, I, um, let me turn around and grab. It's very expensive. There's a... I'm not for sure. The, the, the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. Text and commentary, David W. Chapman and Eckhard J. I'm thinking pronouncing that right, Schneiber. Yeah. Who who published that, Trevor? Uh uh Hendrix Hendrickson publishers. And but, Hendrickson is a is major. What is on the back? Who does it say the uh the, the author is? On the on the, the back where it gives the author bio, usually in the back of the bio. Oh, uh, David W. Chapman, uh, PhD, University of Cambridge. So it's, you know, he obviously knows what he's talking about. Where does he teach? He is professor of New Testament and archaeology at Covenant Theological Seminary, St. Louis. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Well, you know what? You got me. I, I My bibliography on the resurrection is like um, uh, over 4,000 sources, just wow. almost, almost totally from wow. 1975 on just from 75 on. And, uh, and I don't know if I have that one. I'm going to, when I get off here, I'm going to make that note. I think it just, if, go back and make sure it's in my bib. Yeah. I think it just came out maybe towards the end of 2019. Yes, sir. 20 into 2019. Um, that's, why I that's mm-hmm. maybe why I haven't seen it yet. I mean, you're talking about close to 700 pages of just 
the trial and uh, crucifixion commentary. Trial and, cru- trial and crucifixion. And that first book by, uh, you mm-hmm. see, not that much is done on just the crucifixion, but Cook's book is 550 and that one's 700. Man, we're getting some major books with major. And, and listen, <clears throat> it costs a lot of money to, for a publisher to publish a 700-page book. They, oh, don't yeah. just, they don't just do that and say, oh, yeah, cool, we're going to have that and put multi-thousands of dollars into a book and hope it sells if it's a bunch of garbage. Mm. You know, uh, mm-hmm. That's just an argument. Hendrickson is a, um, it's a really diverse publisher. They have a lot of uh, critical as well as evangelical mm-hmm. sources. And right. uh, just to put all that together, they've got to make sure they want to get their money back. So, Right, right. There we go. I think we... All right, back with Jack. I think he had a little interruption with the internet. Yeah, I want to do his own thing. Yeah, the internet wants to do his own thing. Um, and you know, I mean, you miss COVID, so who knows? Who knows what tomorrow's going to hold? Yeah, COVID got on your computer. <laughs> correct, correct. So let me. Um, I'm gonna bring us to the last point about resurrection. We'll move on to another subject. So for people that say, well, that, that's just you know scholars, and that's just written work. I remember hearing Herschel Shanks, if, uh, you know, Biblical Archaeology Review, um, in Tim Mahoney's series of Patterns of the Exodus, he says that archaeology can neither prove nor disprove a miracle. The, I came across this, was reading um, ancient historian Paul Meyer's book, um, In the Fullness of Time, his title right. name. He was talking about the Nazareth inscription. And then sometime later in May 2020, I just came across an article on the Nazareth inscription and, you know, the um, the PhD there, he's he's making a case for this is probably some written work having to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. I'm not for sure if you can detail a little bit to us about the Nazareth inscription and where scholars stand on that. Is that relating to the resurrection of Christ? Well, that's a real tough question. Okay, it's a real piece of archaeology. Mm-hmm. It is usually dated. It says the emperor. The, it's scratched in a rock. This isn't an ancient scroll. Mm-hmm. It's it's in a rock. It says emperor. It's usually thought to be Claudius, who's the emperor after uh, the emperor who, who was in control when Jesus died. That was Tiberius. Tiberius. And and. Claudius is next. It's thought to be him. That would put it in the 40s AD. Mm-hmm. And it says anybody caught guilty, anybody guilty of grave robbing will be punished by death. Paul Meyer makes the point, and you're right, he's an ancient historian, retired from Western Michigan University. Paul makes the point that grave robbing around the Roman Empire was not a capital offense. So mm-hmm. you didn't get killed for grave robbing. But uh, why now and why then and why was this stone found in Nazareth? And it's been suggested it's just possible, nothing more, just possible that it's in Nazareth because by that time, by the 40s, by the emperor after the emperor who was alive when Jesus died, mm-hmm. uh, they might have got the report that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and and they might have assumed the body was stolen or even the story of the Jewish, the paying off the guards. Mm-hmm. And 
So they may have put the inscription there because of the story. It's found in a little time. I mean, who goes to Nazareth for anything? If you right, right. Of it? I mean, who, who goes there? Mm-hmm. Um, why Nazareth? Probably because in Rome, they didn't know it wasn't a big metropolis, and they just knew this guy was named Jesus of Nazareth. So he commands a rock. Anyway, there is some thought now that the rock actually uh, refers to grave robbing uh, somewhere else and not necessarily in Nazareth, even though the stone is in Nazareth. That's another mm. theory that hasn't been proven. But there's one thing on the rock that's very interesting. Um, one other thing. When Matthew says they sealed the tomb and there was a guard in front, mm-hmm. uh, and again, a lot of critics don't like that, but the text says they, they rolled the stone, guards in front, and they sealed the tomb. The Nazareth decree refers to sealed tombs. If mm-hmm. you break a seal and roll the stone back, this is punishable by death. Mm-hmm. Where did the seal come from? The seal would make it sort of official, sort of Roman-like. Right. And that's, that's and Matthew, but you don't see Roman seals around the, the Mediterranean world when people are dead, just because Romans are the rulers in Rome. Mm-hmm. So there are some implications there that it could be because of the story that the disciples claimed they saw the risen Jesus. That, mm-hmm. and that's often said, Paul Meyer takes that view. The, the good news is it's interesting evidence and you do have that reference to the seals on the tomb. Mm-hmm. The, but, it, but the negative is it's really hard to say it had to be Jesus and, and trace it right there. But it's a piece of evidence that may indeed be, be uh, apropos. Right. That, you know, I think too now, I think where scholarship is coming around and, you know, scientific data with the, the Shroud of Turin, you know, yep. Yep. Well, that we good. see on, you know, TV or uh, the History Channel, it was very critical. Always was, you know, a yep. medieval depiction. But, well, know. and now the carbon dating has been blown up. Right. Just I, I saw that last it's, October. It's shocking, you know, um, real shocking to see that. Um, so, if you've been following us on social media to our audience, um, you would also know that, you know, we're going to be dealing with near-death experiences. I'm pretty sure that, I, well, let me say this. I can recall, you know, first time I ever heard of near-death experiences. And I was just like, oh, it's just people, you know, maybe had a car accident or something, fell out of a tree or something, and you said their life flashed for their eyes. Until you start hearing stories of people having out-of-body experiences, people maybe seeing their relatives in another room during when they knew they were having surgery or, for that matter, going to heaven or, in some cases, going to hell. Um, Dr. Habermas, this is another area, and especially amongst evangelicals, that you're, you're bringing to light as far as near-death experiences. I guess detail to us what a near-death experience is, because some people say, oh, my life flashed before my eyes, but, you know, maybe you can detail a little bit better as far as what a near-death experience is. Sure. A near-death experiences aren't only, a critic's going to say right away, they happen when a person isn't, isn't just near death. Okay. Mm-hmm. Things happen in weird circumstances, like when a person is like, for example, there's been some reports of a car. You know how you've been in a car accident when you know you're going to hit and you go, I'm going to hit and you brace. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. There have been some people who've had a near-death experience, right? or they've reported one at least, right then before the car actually hit mm-hmm. or it hit. But by far, the majority of these are experiences during a state from which you can reasonably be thought to die without medical intervention. That's near mm-hmm. death. 
And it's not a second chance. It's not post, you know, it's near death. But the most interesting case is I, I had a debate with a, a guy who doesn't like Indies, and it was published by a major secular publisher. Mm-hmm. And we had a debate, and I, I summarized over 300 evidential cases, over 300 evidential cases. Now, an evidential case would be this. I'm, I'm making this one up. I'm giving an example so that people don't uh, say, oh, he said this is one of them. But if, if, if you died right there or you coded, let's say you had a, uh, a heart attack, Mm-hmm. And it's okay. We're going to get you back. You're, you're going to be just fine, Trevor. So, uh, but, but you have a heart attack <laughs> and, and uh, someone calls 911. Mm-hmm. They get here to your place and they know very close. They know when they got the call, they know you were just before that. So they might back it up five minutes and say, that's when the event occurred. Mm-hmm. Let's say 20 minutes later, there's a car accident a mile away mm-hmm. and you watch it and you go, that stupid driver. He went right through the stop sign. You know, people could have been killed. That was a bad accident. Well, I can go get the police report and show that the, that the accident happened after you coded, after you were out. And someone could say, well, he might not have been totally out. Well, there are dozens of cases now of mm-hmm. people who either during general surgery, people hear people talk during surgery, but not general surgery. You're right. like when you have a tooth removed or something, mm-hmm. but not general surgery. There are dozens of cases during general surgery or a cardiac arrest where there's no measurable heart or brain activity. The person's talking, not, not during it, but the, they're talking about a time with no heart or brain. Mm-hmm. And if that person during that state records the car accident, which happened after their cardiac arrest and before they were resuscitated, then you have a pretty interesting account. Why did you see something a block away, two blocks mm-hmm. away, mm-hmm. five blocks? How did you see something that you couldn't have seen in your own home? Let's say you're on the floor and let's say there's no windows in your room. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to say, well, some part of your consciousness, the best theory is that you were conscious while you had no measurable brain or heart information. One, one famous case, um, <clears throat> a woman in that state looked down <clears throat> and she saw a number, a 12-digit number riveted to the top of a, of, of a medical unit in the, mm-hmm. in the room there. Right. And, and when she came to, she said, I've, I'm obsessive compulsive. I have OCD mm-hmm. and I memorize large numbers. And she said, get a pen, get a pen. And the nurse got a pen. And she said, here's the number. And she read all 12 numbers. Mm-hmm. Well, the nurse said, that's interesting because she was out. I mean, she coded, you know, and, and they put, the, uh, put it away. Well, later, some guys came in. I mean, like, I think it was uh, like a week or a few days later, guys came in to move the, the, the machine. And they made a guy get up on a ladder and read the number on top. And the gal was exactly correct. Now, how could she have seen that number and gotten it right when she couldn't get up there, couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. And, and she had coded during that time. That's just one, one same book. The self does not die. Um, same book. Um, a, a, a person's looking down on their own surgery, but they kind of go through the wall into the next surgical chamber 
they kind of morph through the wall, they say, and they watch a man having his leg amputated. And mm -hmm. anybody can have a leg amputated. But they said they took the leg and they put it in a yellow plastic bag, like a garbage bag, and wow. laid it aside. Mm -hmm. well, you can verify that if there's a if a leg was placed in a yellow. And, and in this book, in this one book that has over 100 evidence cases, mm -hmm. the only requirement to get in this book is you have to have at least one backup for what you're reporting. Somebody else has to have seen it, checked it mm -hmm. out. And like I said, about 40 of them are done under general anesthesia or with no measurable heart or brain activity. Now, a lot of the, a lot of the experiences you're talking about, um, the, you know, the ones where you're saying, well, people claim to have seen uh, Jesus or you said hell, mm -hmm. yeah, about 20% of the cases they see hell. But whenever those, let's call those heavenly cases, let's call the car accident one an earthly case, uh -huh. let's call the, I saw Jesus, I saw an angel, I saw a tunnel of light. Uh, I saw hell. Thankfully, I didn't go there. Okay, those kind of <laughs> stories. Um, those are not verifiable. Those right. kind of visions. So when someone says, well, I'm a Hindu, and I was told that when I die, I'm coming back to this, and, you know, and I'll be reincarnated somewhere or something like that. Mm -hmm. Reincarnation almost never comes up in these stories. But, but anyway, those we don't have data for. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's convenient that you're saying that because you don't want those to be true. No, no, no. The knife cuts both ways. Mm -hmm. Christians who said they saw Jesus, I don't know that either. Right. Well, what about the hell ones? You like that, don't you? First of all, I don't like hell anyway. I don't like somebody to go to hell. However, there's no evidence that they saw hell. Uh -huh. Yes, I'm an equal opportunity disser. Uh, if you don't have data for it, like a police report on a car accident or the 12-digit number up on top or the leg in a yellow bag, mm -hmm. if you don't have evidence for those things, I, I'm not going to believe if you say, I had this really warm and fuzzy feeling. I was with the God of the universe and I felt total, total love. And I, I thought I was going to be coming back there someday. And by the way, there's a hell and you don't want to go. I'm not saying it's false. I'm just saying you don't have any evidence for it. And if a mm -hmm. Hindu says, well, I saw my faith too, and this, this, blah, da, 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 I'm going to say, you don't have any evidence for it. Yeah, I do. I saw the police report. No, 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 no. You saw something on earth that allowed you to say your conscience was operating when your brain and heart were apparently not working. But when you go away to another country, so to speak, you go down a tunnel, you go somewhere else. We don't know that you went there. It could mm -hmm. have been preaching you heard as a child. It could have been your own view. It could have mm -hmm. been a, a, a movie you saw. And you could say, well, the whole thing right. could be a movie you saw. Not when you repeat a 12-digit number and a leg and a yellow bag. And the, now remember the car accident one, I, I kind of, I just made that one up as an example mm -hmm. of how you can have an event in the middle of an event. Right. But if you have those kind of things, the problem is with near-death experiences, here's the bottom line. A Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew, mm -hmm. a Muslim, and a Christian can all agree side by side there is an afterlife. And, mm -hmm. but, you, but it doesn't tell you which afterlife is right because I don't know you saw an angel. I don't know you saw Jesus. You can believe you saw Jesus, but I don't know you saw Jesus. And if mm -hmm. somebody else saw Shiva or another you know, Buddha or... I don't know that. And you don't know that because mm -hmm. there's no evidence for it. But we can all stand side to side that there's an afterlife. So why are NDUs important? Because it says that naturalism, of which naturalism is a philosophical category, of which atheism is a subcategory, 
um, that view is not that view is false. Right. Uh, the famous atheists of the last generation, uh, well, more than one atheist of the last generation, but they will define atheism is the belief the two key views: there's no God and there's no afterlife. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, that's their definition. And if you have an afterlife, that's a pretty bad blow to atheism. So it's not that we think Indies prove um, any religion is true, mm -hmm. but it does seem to say there's an afterlife. And people who don't believe in an afterlife, which are a lot of the people who are complaining the loudest today, Bertrand Russell was the guy who said, the atheist who said, uh, no God, no afterlife. Right. And if you have an afterlife, that's a big blow to atheism. So mm -hmm. I think that's a value of it. It'd be like saying intelligent design. Can you get the God of the Bible from intelligent design? Uh, not really. Uh, it's some really good evidence, but it's an evidence for religion in general. That's an mm -hmm. NDE. Right. An NDE is an evidence for religion in general, uh, not an evidence for a specific religion, because that's the part of the NDE we can't judge. Right. Long, long story, but that's a way to get it up there on the board. Yeah. And so that, I mean, it, you know, I guess somebody could be able to argue from a standpoint of universalism, if you're looking at, you know, all the religion, well, I saw my deity, I saw my deity, I saw my deity, you know, and it, but if you're just taking the evidence and just saying, well, it's kind of subjective because I don't have evidence or any corroboration for what you're talking about. Um, you know, saying you saw Jesus or you saw Muhammad or, you know, you know, whatever that, patron why, Hindu got. That's why they could believe in universalism, but they wouldn't have any evidence. Right. Exactly. They could say, I believe that. <laughs> uh -huh. And that's why I said a, a Jew, a Muslim, a, a, a Christian could all stand a Buddhist. They could all stand shoulder to shoulder and say some view of religion is true and there is an afterlife, but you can't tell which one from your death experiences because the the seeing Jesus thing, the seeing hell thing, it's not they're not verifiable experiences. Mm -hmm. I, I can mm -hmm. get a police report on an accident. I can check a, a, a riveted number on top of a medical device. I can't take a photograph of hell while I'm in heaven. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't have data for it. So would there be any connection with NDEs, like, um, you know, with the soul and the resurrection, or would you still keep those separate if you're trying to bridge it? that type of argumentation? Oh, I, I, I bring them together in this way. Okay. A lot of, you said earlier that a lot of people want to say history maybe can show there's evidence like for the resurrection, but history can't say a miracle happened. Okay. That, that's right. a really subtle distinction there. The reason history can't say it was a resurrection is because history doesn't see God reach down in the tomb and raise that body up. Right. They don't, um, there's no, but a philosopher, a person who's trained in philosophy or theology has better weapons to show you how we know it's a theistic universe, how we know there's a uh, God. Mm -hmm. And if there's a God, why wouldn't it be the one that raised Jesus since he's the only one that could do it in Christianity? Uh, Jesus is the only founder of major religions raised from the dead. So, when they say, well, we can't prove God did it. A lot of dispute about that. You could be a mm -hmm. wise historian and just say, well, no, my history doesn't prove that, but you tell me who else did it if there's a resurrection. You know, that, that right. what I'm saying is you can't get there with arguments for God or arguments for intelligent design 
or NDEs say there's an afterlife. See, and here's how I would use it. If you say, time out, I don't believe in the resurrection because that's a miracle, that's a event in another world. We call it the afterlife and you have no evidence for another world. I'll go, wait a minute. If I have an evidence that that person was up above her body reporting mm -hmm. that 12 digit number, which is an actual case, mm -hmm. if she reports that 12 digit number, you know, when those kind of people, when they try to talk to people during their NDE, they go, mom, mom, I'm fine. Dad, don't worry about me. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever hears them. So they are already by definition in another world. Right. We don't, we don't get another world from your argument, but we get another world from NDEs. Mm -hmm. And we get an afterlife from Indies. So if you already have an afterlife, that is the realm in which resurrection occurred. So if there's an afterlife, if there's another world where you keep living, now you try to disprove the resurrection. Hmm. You got that plus the resurrection evidence. And it looks like the resurrection is something that happened in that world. Mm -hmm. So. I'm leave, we'll conclude with this. So would you, would you say, and I'm, I'm looking at certain schools that have taken this on as a study, is this becoming like a new hot topic? Yeah. And, and, and amidst, you know, coronavirus, you know, so many deaths and, you know, yeah. cause I'm thinking about UVA, you know, how they have a, a department or, or, you know, a little school dedicated to the study of near death experience. Is it a lot more people? Their then main we, guy just retired, Bruce Grayson. He's a, okay. He's a good friend. Cool, cool. Uh, so, would you, is it is a is it more common for these experiences to occur, or is it just maybe one in you know whatever thousand of people? They estimate, and, and the numbers go up and down. They used to be higher, but now that the, it's like COVID. Now that you get more uh -huh. cases, you can change the numbers on how many get it and how many die. Right. right. Near death experiences are usually put at about ten to twelve percent of those who are in those situations, about mm -hmm. 10 to 12%, small number. But when you put them together, I've got a book right here. So you got to pull a book out later. So I'll pull a book <laughs> out right now. This is the latest, one of the latest books, The Science of Near-Death Experiences. It's a, it's a scientific book. It's not mm -hmm. religious. The Science of Near-Death Experiences by a medical doctor editor is published by University of Missouri Press. And mm -hmm. every one of these articles was published previously in a medical journal. They estimate that in North America alone, 21 million people claim to have had near-death experiences. Wow. What I mean is they're far, you could say, oh, well, half of those were not true. Good. So now there's only 10 and a half million people in North America who've had them. What I mean is when you go, well, you can watch a movie of Oz, you can watch a movie of Middle Earth mm -hmm. or, or Narnia or whatever, or you can read Bunyan's uh, you know, Pilgrim's Progress, but that's not the other world. No, but if if 10 million or 20 million people have been there, mm -hmm. don't tell me no one's ever seen this world. If right. we started getting 10 million people who flown into space, they would say, I've been in another world, or I've been, you know, you might've just heard the other day in the news, America wants to be the first country to put um, a person on Mars. Mm -hmm. Okay, will you be in another world? That, there's, tw there's 10 to 20 million people right there estimated who claimed to have been another world? Well, that's a bunch of baloney. That sounds like sci-fi. Okay, great. But what if there's 300 evidential cases, which mm -hmm. is the minimum of how many there are? Wow. Wow. I tell you what, this has been an awesome conversation, and we are so glad that Dr. Habermas has come on to bless us with this information on the resurrection and truthfulness and near-death experiences. Um, Dr. Habermas, before we leave, is there any 
recommendation, book recommendations for anybody that wanted to take on a study of the resurrection? I, I would say those books I mentioned, the, the two I mentioned that are readily available, uh, Mike Lacona's book, The Resurrection of Jesus, mm-hmm. and Tom Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. I'd recommend those. Uh, they're heavy, but I'd recommend mm-hmm. them. A popular one would be the one that Mike and I wrote together, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by mm-hmm. Mike Lacona and I. So, right, right. That's pretty old books. Yes, sir. Um, and my question for you, when is your magnum opus coming up? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm, working, I'm working on the end of it, but I have about a year of editing ahead of me, and then I have wow. to the publisher. So it's a lot of work. Okay. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, hey, thank you all. This has been another episode of TBT, Jose 46, Truth Be Told. Thank you all so much for listening. And Dr. Habermas, thank you for joining us on today. Thank Listen, you. Listen, we love you. With you. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. We love you. We're Thanks. praying for you. God bless you. Thanks. Peace. Have a great day. Thanks.